capitalism or socialism? To be or not to be? Which one is it? What's the best? Is it capitalism or is it socialism? Personally, I think it's not even a false choice. It's not a choice at all. These heated discussions people have about capitalism or socialism, or indeed communism, is so nonsensical to me that it's hard to understand how it can get so heated. Imagine I asked you to pick between salt and sugar. Oh, what will you have? Well, I could have one or the other, depending on my mood. On some days, we could mix the salt and sugar together as well. And oh yes, and if you have too much salt or too much sugar, then you will have some serious health problems. So what do you do? Well, you regulate how much sugar or salt that you take, right? So, yep, I'm comparing salt and sugar to capitalism and socialism. As I said, it's not a choice. It is human nature, both of them. However, taking them to extremes messes with your brain. Do not do it. Governments, or at least governments with some sense, regulate both the socialism and the capitalism in their countries. They will make sure socialism is kept in check, and so too is capitalism. Sometimes these governments create rules and regulations to intervene in these categories. Other terms like freedom, democracy, authoritarian, dictatorship, and so on often get thrown about in these discussions, but that's not what we're discussing here. None of those things matter when we discuss the theories behind the two ideas, one, capitalism, and two, socialism. And what an interesting couple of ideas they are. It's like God. Hear ye, ye, hear ye, hear ye. Let's worship at the altar of capitalism or socialism. People go around creating political parties on this position or that position. Worse, they even create whole countries thinking they are doing something useful. Yet even worse still, people go to war and kill for these ideas. Stop. You don't need to. It's not that important. These two ideas are just that, ideas. Let me reiterate. Authoritarianism, dictatorship, freedom, democracy, etc. are not related to any of these ideas. Okay, so let's start with socialism. The basis for modern socialism originates with the Age of Enlightenment and the accompanying rise of liberalism and the Industrial Revolution. Socialism is a political, social and economic philosophy that encompasses a number of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership of the means of production and democratic control such as self-management of companies by workers. See the words there, democratic and ownership of the means of production. Yes, democratic, because they believe that the way they're doing the ownership of the means of production is democratic. Communism, on the other hand, is a philosophical, social, political and economic ideology and a movement 
whose ultimate goal is the establishment of a communist society, namely a socio-economic order, structured upon the ideas of a common ownership of the means of production, just like socialism, and the absence of social class, money, and the state itself. Communism, by the way, is a specific yet distinct form of socialism. Just so you know, the flag of socialism and communism is red. Just in case you don't know, the flag of capitalism is blue. Anyhow, the word socialism finds its root in the Latin sociere, which means to combine or to share. The related, more technical term in Roman and then medieval law was societas. Initial use of the term socialism was claimed by a chap called Prairie Leroux, who alleged he first used the term in the Parisian journal Le Globe in the year 1832. Leroux was a follower of a chap called Henri de Saint-Simon, one of the founders of what would be later called utopian socialism. But these are just superficial definitions, aren't they? What actually are the origins of socialism? Well, try this. Imagine you are not in the present moment, but in the past, like 20,000 years ago in the past. You are in a small tribe. You are hungry for food and you need food. You need security and you need shelter. How do you get this? You could choose to live up a tree or in a cave and hope no one or no predator finds you. Chances are you may find yourself in some kind of a group, though. It may be a family or extended family or some other associates, maybe a group of many individuals, because people who you may like or you may not like are in that group too. Being in a group, be it small group, or a big group, allows you to sort out your security. So in larger numbers, as in greater than one, you kind of feel safer. The expanded brain trust of the group allows you to learn from them and to impart some data of your own to others. Maybe someone can make better hunting tools, while others might know all the safe spots to sleep soundly at night. The bigger group may need you to forage for food, but of course there are more of you to go find the food so you can pick up more. It also means that some people can hunt while others can hang tight in a safe spot. Maybe there are small children in the group that need added protection, or even elders. This is a pure socialist society. Let's fast forward to the early moments of written human history around the time of the agricultural revolution. Early humans organized themselves in small tribes where they settled around settlements that could be described as villages or early towns and cities. The ancient Egyptians used a form of a theocratic socialist society as their society. They had a strong unified theocratic state, which, along with its temple system, employed peasants in massive labour projects 
and owned key parts of the economy, such as the granaries, which dispensed grain to the public in hard times. For the ancient Greeks, it was understood that the needs of the city or polis always came before those of the individual property owner and his or her, his typically, family. Ancient Greeks were also encouraged by their custom of kionia to voluntarily share their wealth and property with other citizens, to forgive debtors, and to serve in roles as public servants without pay, and to participate in other pro-social actions. Cura Anoe was the term used in ancient Rome in honour of their goddess Anoa. That was to describe the import and distribution of grain to the residents of the cities of Rome and after its foundation, Constantinople. Rome imported most of the grain consumed by its population, estimated to number about a million people by the 2nd century AD. An important part of this was the grain dole, or corn dole. Note, it was a government program which gave out free or subsidized grain and later bread to the poorest residents of the city of Rome and then Constantinople. The dole was given to about 200,000 people and is an early and long-lasting example of a social safety net. Socialism. In the 3rd century BCE, the Mauryan Empire of India, under the rulership of its first emperor, Chandragupta, who was assisted by his economic and political advisor, Kautalya, has been described as a socialized monarchy, or a sort of state socialism, and the world's first welfare state. You see, under the Mauryan system, there was no private ownership of land, as all land was owned by the king, to whom tribute was paid by the Shudras, or the labouring class. In return, the emperor supplied the labourers with agricultural products, animals, seeds, tools, public infrastructure, and stored food in reserve for times of crisis. The emperor Wang Mang, who in about 9 AD, can be summarised as something of an early socialist. It is said he invented an early form of social security payments in China, collecting taxes from the wealthy to make loans to the traditionally uncreditworthy poor. He introduced the six controls of government monopolies on key products, such as iron and salt, that Hu Xi saw as a form of state socialism and was responsible for a policy known as the Five Equalizations. That was an elaborate attempt to damp down fluctuations in prices. Even Wang's harshest modern critics agree that his ban on the sale of cultivated land was an attempt to save desperate farmers from the temptation to sell up during times of famine. Instead, his state provided disaster relief. Later, the emperor imposed a ruinous tax upon slave owners. It is equally possible to interpret this tax as either an attempt to make slaveholding impossible or as a naked grab for money. In Iran, Mazdak, around 520s BCE, a priest and political reformer, preached and instituted a religiously based socialist or proto-socialist system in the Zoroastrian context 
of Persia. All of these examples are examples of socialism, of state welfare, or welfare state. Any system of government where the government owns stuff, yes, if the government simply exists, it is its existence for the social good, it owns the means of production in what it is engaged in. Think about your own country. Who owns the government employees? Does your government have a central and federal government? Does it have a police, a military? Does it have agencies under its payroll? Does it have a social security system? Does it provide free health care to some or all of its citizens? Does it have law courts? If your country does have these, then it is a socialist system. Imagine what the government owns. It owns a lot. Are you a government employee? If not, then what percentage of the pay that you make goes to the government to fund government-sponsored projects? Oh, and of course, the same government legislates. It also mandates. Think seatbelts and cars. Think rules of the road. Regulations on utility companies and the stock markets. Air traffic control. Airline safety. The list is quite endless. The government is real. You are working for the government and its socialist policies no matter where you live. Let's not forget the big one. Religion. Yes. God and worship of the one or many gods is the ultimate in socialist ideology. It isn't just because the Industrial Revolution happened in Europe that socialism and communism made its debut in Europe, but it's also because God had a hand in it too. The Christian God, that is. Here's a quote. Nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. Has not Christianity declaimed against private property, against marriage, against the state? Has it not preached in the place of these charity and poverty, celibacy and mortification of the flesh, monastic life and mother church? Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat. End quote. Do you know who that was? That was Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto of 1848. Or what about this? And I'm uh, quoting again. You, the rich, how far will you push your frenzied greed? When giving to the poor, you are not giving them what is yours. Rather, you are paying him back what is his. Indeed, what is common to all and has been given to all to make use of you have a spurred for yourself alone. The earth belongs to all, and not only to the rich. You are paying him back. Therefore, your debt you are not giving graciously what you do not owe. Guess who that was? That was Ambrose of Milan, the Sermon on Naboth. Well, moving on from socialism, what about capitalism? The term capitalist, meaning an owner of capital, appears earlier than the term capitalism and it dates to the mid-17th century. Capitalism is derived from capital, which evolved from capital, a late Latin word based on caput, meaning head, which is also the origin of chattel and cattle in the same movable property sense. 
Capitalism is ultimately an economic system based on the private, private ownership of the means of production and their operation for a profit. Capitalism's central characteristics include capital accumulation, competitive markets, a pricing system, private property, and a recognition of property rights, voluntary exchanges, and wage labor. In a capitalist market economy, decision-making and investments are determined by owners of wealth, property, or production ability in capital and financial markets, whereas prices and the distribution of goods and services are determined by competition in goods and services market. Now, of course, the core of capitalism, to me at least, is trade. Trade involves the transfer of goods or services from one person or entity to another, often in exchange for some money. That's trade. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it could be something else. Trade originated from human communication in prehistoric times. Trading was the main facility of prehistoric people who exchanged goods and services from each other in what was called a gift economy before the innovation of a modern-day currency. This means capitalism is as old as humans. Imagine you are in a tribe about 100,000 years ago. You have some amazing weapons, but you had a bad hunt day. The children are hungry, as are you. Another tribe out there has ample meat. However, they won't share it unless you give them something in exchange. They want some of your hunting tools and some clothes. You agree, they agree, mutual benefit. You get meat, they get what they want. Trade, but, you know, a barter trade. No money exchange hands, but trade nonetheless. There is evidence of the exchange of obsidian and flint during the Stone Age. Trade in obsidian, which is some kind of volcanic rock, is believed to have taken place even in Papua New Guinea from around 17,000 BCE. That's a long time ago, guys. Per archaeological evidence, early traders traded this rock at distances of around 900 kilometers within the Mediterranean region. Ebla, for example, was a prominent trading center during the third millennia, with a network reaching into Anatolia and northern Mesopotamia. Materials used for creating jewelry were traded with Egypt since 3000 BCE. Yes, 3000 BCE. Long-range trade routes first appeared in the third millennium BCE, when Sumerians in Mesopotamia traded with the Harappan civilization of the Indus Valley. The Indus Valley Harappan civilization traded with the Sumerians. Think about that. That was 3000 BCE. The Phoenicians were noted sea traders traveling across the Mediterranean Sea and as far north as Britain for sources of tin to manufacture bronze. For this purpose, they established trade colonies the Greeks called Emporia. Speaking of the Greeks, 
From the beginning of Greek civilization until the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century in the west of Europe, a financially lucrative trade brought valuable spice from Europe to the, and the Far East, including from India and China, to Rome from India and China. Roman commerce allowed its empire to flourish and endure. The latter Roman Republic and the Pax Romana of the Roman Empire produced a stable and secure transportation network that enabled the shipment of trade goods without the fear of significant piracy. As Rome had become the sole effective sea power in the Mediterranean with the conquest of Egypt and the Near East, its trade was dominant. The first real maritime trade network in the Indian Ocean was by the Austronesian peoples of uh, islands Southeast Asia who built the first ocean-going ships. Initiated by the animist indigenous peoples of modern-day Taiwan and modern-day Philippines, the maritime Jade Road was an extensive trading network connecting multiple areas in Southeast and East Asia. Its primary products were made of jade minged from Taiwan by animist Taiwanese indigenous peoples and processed mostly in the Philippines by animist indigenous Filipinos. Some were also processed in Vietnam, while the peoples of Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia and Cambodia also participated in the massive animist-laid trading network. This was not even Christian, folks. It was in existence for at least 3,000 years, where its peak production was from 2000 BCE to 500 CE. The Silk Road. This was an, and is a network of trade routes connecting East and West. That from the 2nd century BCE to the 18th century CE, it was central to the economic, cultural, political, and social interactions between these regions. This Silk Road usually refers to certain land routes, but it may also refer to sea routes that connected East Asia and Southeast Asia with South Asia, Persia, the Arabian Peninsula, the Near East, East Africa, and Southern Europe. The Maritime Silk Road, or Maritime Silk Route, refers to the maritime sections of the historic Silk Road that connected ultimately China, Southeast Asia, India, Arabia, Somalia, Egypt, and Europe. It began by the 2nd century BCE and flourished later until the 15th century AD. Trade, capitalism, it's human nature. Oh, and when it comes to religion, and I open a quote here from the Old Testament, condemns the practice of charging interest on a poor person because a loan should be an act of compassion and taking care of one's neighbor. It teaches that making a profit of a loan from a poor person is exploiting that person. That's Exodus 22:25-27. That was in Europe, especially in Western Europe, where they all suddenly went theocratic after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. Once you go theocratic, you force yourself to forget capital trade because God thought it was a bad idea, then you needed an enlightenment to fix it, right? Thus, enter Scotsman Adam Smith and his earth-shattering book, 
The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Well, it was an earth-shattering book for some, because capital and trade were never missing, waiting for Adam Smith to show up or some fancy European thinkers to dream up the word capital. It was always there, because there was always a need for trade and capitalism. The rich may want silk from China, and the poor may want, well, the poor can't have anything because they're tied to land, so the poor can want what they want, they're not going to get anything. Until that is, they ended up working in factories in cities like Manchester and Birmingham. Then capitalism morphed from just a trade to what became known as mercantile capitalism. For its part, mercantilism is an economic policy that is designed to maximize the exports and minimize the imports for an economy. It promotes imperialism, tariffs, and subsidies on traded goods to achieve that goal. The policy aims to reduce a possible current account deficit or reach a current account surplus, and it includes measures aimed at accumulating monetary reserves by a positive balance of trade, especially that of finished goods. This was a form of mercantile imperialism, aka colonialism. Yes, colonialism wasn't like traditional empires like the Roman, Egyptian or Mauryan empires. It was those empires on steroids based on trade. It is this type of imperialism born out of capitalism that the communists needed to foment a socialist communist revolution. Or at least they certainly reacted to this. And that brings us full circle. Think, dear listener, think. Are you in a capitalist or socialist country? Well, the answer is you are in neither. It employs a bit of both, technically. Even North Korea, now in 2021 October, must trade externally with other countries, even if that country is China. Inside North Korea, there is some socialism, but its main problem is brutal dictatorship authoritarianism. What about the United States? Well, you are in a mostly socialist economy. Just go calculate how much tax you pay. Your government is gigantic, possibly one of the largest governments, if not the largest government in the world. It has entire agencies who are designed to monitor and regulate the so-called capitalist economy. The entire stock market is regulated. If large companies wish to merge, the government needs to give its blessing. Capitalism and socialism are simply ideas that have their origins in human nature all through history. The ideas evolved naturally only to be codified and defined in the late 1700s and early 1800s Europe. Once codified, ideologized and written down, they became the new Bibles in the post-Enlightenment era. Yes, people still live and die by these ideas. But they are just that. Ideas. Harmless until you put a gun to it. Just like how I started at the top of this episode. Socialism and capitalism are like forcing people to choose between salt and sugar, not realizing that it's not a choice at all. 
My suggestion to you when you are in somewhat polite company and a discussion gets heated is to throw this idea into the mix, see how they react, often not very well, and then pat your own back, grab a smug look on your face and move on to discussing how much salt and sugar they throw into the sweet and sour chicken dish. Capitalism and socialism is not worth getting into a heated argument about. At least that's my view. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to recommend the podcast to other people. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.